0: This past weekend, my wife, Professora Belmonte, and I took a hike just past the boundary of the 413 to the athol Royalston town line to Tully Lake and the beautiful Dones Falls. According to the trustees of the reservation who maintain the recreation area, the reservation is named for Amos Stone, who in the early 19th century built a mill 50 feet long and more than four stories tall above the falls that manufactured doors and sashes and blinds. Though Doan's venture eventually failed, a series of previous mills like grist mills had successfully operated on the falls. While we were traipsing through the snow and the falls were roaring in the background, I was struck by how beautiful it all looked and sounded. So I pulled out a recorder and took what I'm calling an earshot, at least for today. We're interested in hearing your sonic landscapes that you're fond of here in Western Mass. I love hearing all the... uh, the Crossing Cuckoos at different places, <laughs> like the Northampton one. If you have a smartphone, you have a pretty great audio recorder with you at all times. So you can just make a recording and then maybe email us a little bit about what we're listening to and send it to us as an earshot at Fab 413 at nepm.org. So
1: I have one at my house in Springfield, where just behind my house, there's a dingle. And in the trees there have, for the past maybe about three weeks, gathered this growing murder of crows. And right around dusk, you just hear them shouting at each other, and it is absolutely amazing. So, I'll get a little bit of that to bring in. For I can't sure. wait to hear that. I it's hope it beautiful, to grow. too. You look up, and you just see them against the sky, and it's amazing.
0: The only murder of crows I've ever witnessed was in North Adams, and it was unbelievable. It was like at dusk. The sky grew dark with black crows. It was unbelievable.
1: I need to start feeding them so they become truly mine. (laughs) We
0: may advise you against that, but we'll see. (laughs) Welcome to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Monte.
1: And I'm Khalees Smith. Coming up tomorrow on the show, Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart giving us a prelude to the Tanglewood season. And U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern joins us for more McGoverning. If you have a question for the congressman or the maestro, you can email us or text us 800-639-9120. Today is International Women's Day. The United Nations celebrates today as a day when women are recognized for their achievements without regard to divisions, whether national, ethnic, linguistic, cultural, economic, or political. Just this one day. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a woman in your life who you'd like to honor on International Women's Day? Text us at 800-639-9120 or send us an email at thefab413 at nepm.org and we will try to honor them at the end of the show. Meanwhile, after Monty ended his morning radio gig and before he started here at NEPM, he skipped the mainland and took a trip to Puerto Rico, where he met up with two former Holyokers who traded in making waves in city politics for the actual waves of the island.
2: My name is Josie Valentin. And I'm Miriam Quiñones.
1: Josie, tell me
0: about why people in Western Massachusetts may be familiar with your name.
2: Well,
3: they may remember me from politics. I was a city councillor in Holyoke, Massachusetts for six years, and then after that, I had the privilege of working as state director for Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign and then for Senator Markey.
0: And Miriam, tell me about your relationship to Holyoke.
2: Well, I moved to Holyoke about 32 years ago when I was 18, and so I pretty much grew up there. I worked at Holyoke Community College for 21 years, and I did a lot of service in the community. And also, you know, being the wife of a very famous politician in Holyoke (laughs) just, you know, comes uh, vicariously, so.
0: We're just here on vacation, and uh, you're now listening to this on my new radio gig. This is officially my first interview for my new show, and I'm thrilled you both drove far to get from where you are staying in Sidra to here in Isabella. It'd be like coming to visit me in Holyoke from Boston, Correct. essentially, except the ocean is here, and the first thing we did was look at sea
3: turtles. <laughs> and there's no mouse pike.
0: First of all, tell me about, Josie, your political rise. What made you decide you wanted to enter Holyoke politics?
3: In 2011, I volunteered for a young guy who was running for mayor of Holyoke, Alex Morse. and uh... Now the
0: fake mayor of Town.
3: <laughs> you said that. I did not say that. He is the town manager from it's home, and he's doing a great job out there. And so when I was volunteering for Alex, I really picked up on the fact that there was a huge issue of lack of representation in Holyoke politics. As you know, Holyoke is now over 50% Puerto Rican. That is not what the elected officials in Holyoke looked like at all. When I first ran in 2013 for Holyoke City Council, there were only three out of 15 city councilors that were Puerto Rican. And so three out of 15 is definitely not 50%. Right. I'm not a math major, but we can figure that out. You know, I felt like I wanted to get involved at a different level. I wanted to give back to the community in a different level. And uh, I ran. I was told to run for school committee. And I said, no. I'm, Why? I'm Why were you told to run Because I'm a woman. And that's what's expected. So um, <laughs> so I said, no, nope, I'm running for city council, which is what the guys do, because I want to have a voice at this table and really have an impact on decisions that affect Holyochers every day. So I ran for the first time in 2013, really did a grassroots campaign, knocked on doors, all over my ward and was successful. And then I did it two other times because I don't know why. No, because I felt like it was important to open the doors for others. And it actually was a a great kind of side-by-side experience with being at the college, Holyoke Community College, right? And then giving back to the community in this very specific way as an elected official. So after those six years, I got a call the day after Christmas and uh, in that call I was told two things. Number one, that Elizabeth Warren was running for president and number two, that they wanted to know if I would consider leaving my job at HCC of 13 years to be her state director in Massachusetts. I said I needed 24 hours to think about it and I needed to talk to my wife about it. (laughs) The reality is within 30 minutes I had made the decision.
0: (laughs) Miriam, how long did it take for you to come around to that decision and how did you feel about it?
2: As soon as she said it, I said you have to. There's no way you can say no Mm. you have to do this because the other thing that she's not telling you is that when she ran for city councilor soon after she became the mentor of many other puerto rican young men and women who wanted to run and were successful and so she and she continues to be a mentor to uh, many people of color that run for office so yes i said it's a no-brainer you have to do this you will represent western mass the entire western mass and also our community
0: Well, on that mentorship note, I mean, Holyoke's representation, Mm -hmm. given from when you started, has grown astronomically in regards to the Puerto Rican population being Mm -hmm. represented there, given the fact that there is now a Puerto Rican mayor for the first time, there's more representation on the council. How does that make you feel as somebody who is kind of a, a trailblazer in that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I listen. I'm I'm honored that I was part of that group of elders, <laughs> um, you know, and, and obviously there were way more people before me, like Betty Medina, who you know was the first Puerto Rican to run for school committee um, in Holyoke, and people like Orlando Isasa, and just so many people that. You know, are part of that history of Holyoke who were born like to fight, you know, for the city of Holyoke and still do. It was a it was a great honor, a great responsibility, and and it's something that I don't take lightly in any way, shape, or form.
0: Where we last left your story, you are going to be the Massachusetts campaign director for the Elizabeth Warren for President campaign. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what that experience was like and how you brought your Puerto Rican heritage Mm -hmm. into that campaign beyond just Massachusetts.
3: One word, for sure, life-changing. I mean, it's very rare to see a state director for a presidential campaign that is Puerto Rican, queer, and a woman. And I took that, obviously, very seriously. When I went to debates with Senator Warren nationwide, other state directors or other campaign folks usually did not look like me.
0: And you were there to represent in Spanish, really, right?
3: I was. I, I was um, I was privileged to, to come with her to many of the debates because for the Spanish media, um, when they would do interviews with Univision, Telemundo, obviously the the largest networks, I was there with her. And so I think my favorite memory of of the debate trips uh, was when we went to Miami, uh, because the day after the Miami debate, we actually went to Homestead a lot of spotlight was coming into the situation with the children and cages and and to be there with Senator Warren and to see that she genuinely cared about making a difference that she genuinely wanted to you know figure out a way to, to fix this was just really powerful and and she was and still is a, a phenomenal elected official and I'm just so honored that I had this opportunity to to be there with her team
0: she did not win for the president as she did not, most people listening no um you did work for uh, another US senator from Massachusetts as well.
3: Yes, Mr. Maki. So Ma- <laughs> so after um, the Elizabeth Warren campaign was suspended, COVID hit. And so I actually got to stay home for three months and catch up with my wife because after 13 months of not being home, mm-hmm. um, it was actually nice to, to be around doing things together in the house. And was that nice for you, Miriam?
2: It was amazing. So <laughs> I... I started working remote and I would just sit in the morning and she would just bring me breakfast, lunch, and dinner.
3: That is true. So about uh, four days after Senator Warren suspended her campaign, I got a call. From the Markey team, asking me if I would join Senator Markey, and uh, you know he was up for re-election against Joe Kennedy. And I said, you know, I need some time to like recharge my batteries, and I'm not sure what I want to do next. I mean, there was a part of me that felt so burnt out by politics that I wasn't sure I wanted to do that anymore. I asked them for some time, and they were very patient. And finally, um, I, I agreed to to join the team, and so I joined him in a dual role. I was a state policy advisor for him and also the director for Congressional District 1. So I was based in Springfield at the office, and because he was in re-election mode, any time that was evenings or weekends, I was on the campaign trail with him when he was in Western Mass, and that was a lot of fun. So I got to relive some of the campaign life, obviously at a smaller scale. I think it was a great kind of next step for me, Um, I was with him almost two years, and then um, we decided it was time to leave Massachusetts.
0: I'm speaking in Isabela, Puerto Rico, on the beach. The noises you can hear in the background are not sound effects. (laughs) We had to shut the door. Hold on, I'm gonna open the door so you hear how loud the ocean is. Again, not sound effects. This is how loud the ocean is from where we are. It's incredible. I can't believe I came back to Massachusetts at all after this, but I'm so glad (laughs) to be here. And we just had a delicious lunch right down the street where um, you recommended all sorts of food, including the full fish that I had called.
3: Chijo, snapper.
0: And like the head and all that was on it, fried, delicious, perfect, (laughs) amazing. With Josie Valentin and Miriam Quiñones, who have left Holyoke where you, the listener, may know them most and have come back to Puerto Rico. First off, Tell me about your, your own personal relationship with being Puerto Rican and Holyoke and the back and forths that you've done throughout your life, Miriam.
2: I was I was a child when I when I left the island. Um, I had a I also had a kid. I was a, a teenage mother when I left my little town of Jauco to go to Holyoke. Um, I had friends there from Jauco who offered us to, you know their their apartment to for us to stay with them. And so I never left Holyoke. T- 32 years you know. And so I built a life there, and I met mentors um, along the way like. Orlando Isasa and Betty Medina, who became my family and and taught me and walked me through the leadership road, and Holyoke became my home. And so I still say home when I talk about Holyoke. I I continue to have that issue of not knowing where home is Mm. (laughs) yet, Um, because, you know, 32 years there, I did a lot of uh, leadership work and community work. And being at Holyoke Community College, and for 21 years, I was able to to connect the city of Holyoke with the college. You know, it's really gratifying. I mean, I never ran for office because I am not a public person. I hate being put on the spot, so this is very difficult. <laughs> You're doing fantastic. You're doing fantastic. <laughs> but um, I do love to do stuff behind the scenes. And so when Alex, I knew Alex from when he was a, a kid, five years old. Alex Morse, they're, former mayor of both. They're both, um, my daughter and, and him are both the same age. Um, and so they went to school to Morgan School together. And so when I learned about his desire to run for mayor, we right away, you know, supported him. And so I felt like the the community needed my people needed some education about how politics worked in United States because they're very different from here i wanted to educate others and so i created a, a course called a politics 101 where i invited folks to come and speak to the students it was an 8 week course where um, people would come and just learn about the the process of you know being in any kind, of, on boards, on commissions, and on all kinds of leadership without having to run for office. And then I continued, I was a member of so many um, nonprofits. Um, became the president of Enlace de Familias, and I was on the CDC, the Latino Scholarship Fund. I mean, too many to name. But that's how I got involved with the community. And, and I loved it, I loved it, and I feel that Somehow, someway, I, I left a mark. That's my gift to Holyoke. And I will always have to come back because my fam- I have family there. Holyoke will, be, will continue to be our second home.
1: While Puerto Rico is not technically international in regards to the U.S., it's not not international. <laughs> we'll continue to celebrate International Women's Day. Coming up, more with Miriam Quinones and Josie Valentin on why they would leave their Holyoke home to return to Puerto Rico. I
0: love the 413, but, I mean, listening to that ocean, kind of why wouldn't you?
1: I mean, I love the ocean also. Yeah. (laughs) And if you have someone you want to honor this International Women's Day, especially a woman from Western Mass, email us at thefab413 at nepm.org or call us at 1-800-639-9120. You're listening to The Fabulous 413. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. Let's go back to Monty's conversation on the beach with two former Holyoke movers and shakers who have returned to Puerto Rico. Holyoke
2: will continue to be our second home.
0: Meanwhile, I'm closer to your current home (laughs) um, here in Puerto Rico, where you've driven from your home in Sidra to Isabella on the coast where I'm vacationing. Josie Valentin, former city councillor in Holyoke, former campaign director for Massachusetts for the Elizabeth Warren campaign. Tell me about your relationship with Puerto Rico and Holyoke
3: my transition to Massachusetts was very different than Miriam's. Um, I went to college here, undergrad, and then... Here um, being Puerto Rico. Yes, here being Puerto Rico. When I was a junior at the University of Puerto Rico, I went to UMass Amherst on Exchange and fell in love with Western Mass. And so I went to Northampton, (laughs) walked in, down Main Street, and I said, oh my God, I need to live here. Why? Well, because I'm a lesbian. (laughs) (laughs) And I had just come out um, here in Puerto Rico, and it was uh, very different than being in Northampton. So at that point, I did not know that Northampton was known as Lesbianville, but I kind of figured it out. <laughs> Honestly, I just felt very comfortable. I felt like that was supposed to be my place. So I packed up my bags, four suitcases, 22 years old, and came to Massachusetts. And my first job was at ServiceNet because my background was in mental health and substance abuse before politics. Um, I was a director for Casa Latina in North. Hampton at like 23. I then uh, decided to pursue my master's degree in forensic psychology um, in Springfield at AIC and so uh, was able to obtain the job as director for the forensics unit at the Ludlow jail which was supposed to be the perfect job for this master's degree I had except it was the job that literally like killed me. Before that, I had done five years um, running a substance abuse program in Holyoke called Arbor House. And so I really got to know Holyoke in a different way. And I would always go to Holyoke to the Puerto Rican restaurants, right? Fernandez, which was there over 30 years. Um, We love the Fernandez family. And I said, you know what? I've been in Northampton seven years. It's time that I go like figure out my Puerto Rican self in Holyoke. So I moved to Holyoke in 2005, met Miriam in 2006, and the rest is history. It's been 16 wonderful years, and, and I never would have guessed I was going to be a part of the political landscape. Miriam was supposed to want, the, supposed to be the one that ran for office, because <laughs> everybody knew her, but, um, you know, things flipped. And so for me, I think Holyoke will always be, just like Miriam said, will always be home, but it will also be a place of unbelievable professional growth for me. I mean, I, I if I was would not have been city councilor for six years, I would have never met Senator Warren and Senator Markey. I would have never had those opportunities to be on their teams. 13 years at Holyoke Community College as a um, senior, you know, a senior counselor there doing personal counseling and academic advising just introduced me to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students that I, just like Miriam, the 21 years she was there, you know, we know that we made an impact on people in Holyoke. That is part of our legacy there. And so it's it's something that we're proud of and, and we definitely do not take lightly. But it's also it was also what prepared us to say, it's time for us to go back home.
0: And here we are, back in Puerto Rico. One more little bit of politics before we get into your next phase, uh, Josie Valentina and Miriam Quinones, is that I'm assuming because of your relationship with a lot of high profile political figures, you develop a relationship with one of the most high-profile Puerto Rican politicians who famously stood up to Donald Trump post-Hurricane Maria.
2: It's just like telling
4: somebody that's gone through a fire that it's their fault, that they didn't run fast enough. No, it is your fault, Mr. President. You should shame on yourself and your administration. You let us here to die because you were more concerned about the political spin than about the human reality that we were dying.
0: And who then left Puerto Rico to come to Western Massachusetts <laughs> <laughs> to go teach at Mount Holyoke. Conrad Julian Cruz. It's her yes.
2: fault.
0: <laughs>
3: so, I mean, listen, shortly after Maria, it was obvious that Mayor Cruz was the absolute spokesperson for this island. Right after Maria, Miriam and I were here in Puerto Rico doing um, volunteer work. We came for about three weeks to, to do volunteer work, and um, I hand-delivered a letter to Mayor Cruz from Mount Holyoke College where they wanted her to come and be a keynote speaker and talk about leadership. And she immediately accepted the invite. And so when she came to Mount Holyoke to speak in 2018, we immediately bonded, became very good friends, and it was time for us to come back home. And now she was in Western Bass. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at first she, you know, she was very sad and and said, "I can't believe you're leaving." But at the same time, she was just so happy for us, and and genuinely just really thrilled that we got to come back home, that we got to be a part of the community here again. I've looked up to her for a long time. I mean, any woman who is outspoken and strong. Um, You know, I think about people like her and Ayanna Presley and Elizabeth Warren, and these are the type of women that we want to see in positions of power because they are trying to to make a difference and and trying to implement change.
0: I was told through a mutual friend of ours, from Holyoke, via Puerto Rico, that after Maria, that the work that you did volunteer-wise with you and Miriam to get supplies here, it was Carmen Julian Cruz who said Josie and Miriam did more for the island than anybody.
3: Hmm. Well, that's very generous of her, (laughs) and I did not pay her to say that, but, um, but no, I mean, look, we took matters into our own hands, right? I mean, and that's when you look at community work and you look at who can try to make a difference, it's usually... You know the people that are staying away from the red tape and the bureaucracy and the boricua care packages project was something that we will always be um you know very proud of and and we were thrilled to see that one of our mentees priscilla rivera the owner of city sports bar and lounge in holyoke after fiona replicated it and you know ended up sending almost 500 care packages we we did it from our heart and and that's i think that's what showed
0: speaking with josie Valentin and miriam quinones who are now from Puerto Rico, in Cidra, but have strong roots in Holyoke and will always be from Holyoke. And in 2022, decided after an illustrious career with Holyoke Community College, an illustrious career both in elected politics and election politics, decided to sell their Holyoke home and come back to the island. Tell me about what led to that decision and what you've both been doing here since then.
3: So we think we made the decision during a snowstorm. <laughs>
0: I do not blame you.
3: (laughs) Or at least it was highly influenced by that. No, I mean, for me, you know, 23 years in Massachusetts, 32 for Miriam. We honestly, we were sick of the cold and we were empty nesters. And I think COVID really just opened our eyes and, and said to us, this can change in a heartbeat. What are we waiting for? It wasn't
2: a storm or COVID that led us to Puerto Rico. We're social justice change agents. And so when we came to do work for Maria, we realized that the island was being taken over, gentrified. The, the beaches were you know, privatized and poor areas were just gentrified. And so we felt the pain. If you ask me, my choice of Moving to the United States was about access and about a better life for, for my daughter, you know, at the time, and build a family. But I never wanted to leave Puerto Rico. I, if I had the access and the, and the support that I gained in the United States, then I would have stayed here. So I've always wanted to come back. It was a dream that I didn't think was going to become true. I have never thought that I see myself coming back to Puerto Rico and living here. Here with the privilege that I have today. I applaud all those who leave because they have to leave and, and I applaud those who don't want to leave and they're resilient. They're in the struggle but they stay and I applaud those who come back, you know, and so we wanted to come back and be part of of the change. We're not going to change, the, you know, the, the, the gentrification. We didn't come here to save Puerto Rico but we know that coming here to be part of that movement that is rooting for Puerto Ricans to do better here, for the island to stay Puerto Rican and not, not gentrified. One piece of land at a time, one person at a time. When we decided to do the business, we had that in, in, in our minds. We wanted to educate those who come, you know, our friends who we love, and um, they love us for who we are, and they would want to come to Puerto Rico to visit and learn all about it and, and embrace it. That is possibly the, the most important part of this business. You know, it's not about making money. It's not about um, becoming rich. We want to give back to the island. We want to work with locals, you know, take people to the local restaurants and hire the, the, the local kayak business or the horseback riding business or you know and so be able to, to work with those uh, local uh, entities. And help them grow the same way that we want to grow and get back to the island.
0: So it's a pretty new business. So tell me about yes. you know who you've been working with and how. I'll just say personally, when I told you I was coming, you moved hell in high water to figure out a way that we could get together and then also like texted me a million different things to do right <laughs> around where we are right now. That's kind of what the business
1: is.
3: Yeah, so you know, Miriam always said, you know, you always give information to people about Puerto Rico for free. Like maybe we should just charge for the that- <laughs> <laughs> and so that's kind of the premise right that we that we're coming from so we are now business owners we moved here end of april and then uh, mid-july bought a house in sidra a multifamily and incorporated our company. It's called Aventuras Juiza, Y-U-I-Z-A, which is the name of the first and only female cacique of the Taino Indians here in the history of Puerto Rico.
0: What's cacique and what's Taino, for people that might not know those Yes.
3: Terms. So Taino are the indigenous folks here from Puerto Rico. So if you were to talk about Mexicans and you talked about the Mayans and the Aztecs, well, in Puerto Rico, we, we talk about the Tainos. And so cacique was the person that was in charge. And so this cacique, this female cacique juiza, according to history, was the first female cacique, which is a huge deal because, as we know, to this day, um, a lot of uh, positions of power are held <laughs> by men. And so to think about this being a part of the history, uh, we wanted to really honor that as women entrepreneurs. So Aventuras Chuiza is what we call a boutique tourism business. This is not your typical tour operator where you know 15 people get in a van, they get dropped off at the rainforest, and then like you know, five hours later, somebody comes and gets you, hopefully. This is very personalized. Um, we're doing this very intentionally. Like Miriam said, like, we're not here to be rich. We will never have the salaries we had in the United States, and we came here knowing that. We're looking at quality of life. So what we wanna do is we wanna share with others what we are experiencing here in Puerto Rico. And so the business is kind of like four different components. One is you can stay with us and it's like a bed and breakfast situation, right? Literally, we'll make you breakfast. And then the second piece, which is the one that we really will enjoy the most because it's where we get to educate folks and and share with them the experiences we've had here on the island, and that's the tour piece. We're talking about a full day tour, we pick you up, we take you to different kind of set destinations we have, places that we've been to that we know the condition of that we know what's open, what's not open, who owns the restaurant, who's going to like have the best mojitos, right? Like the passion fruit one you had earlier. Well done. (laughs) And so so it's like, you know, we want to do the off the beaten path. You're not vacationing. You're like hanging out with locals and it's just a very different field. And then the other piece is if you want to be completely independent, um, we can do the research for you. So we can build itineraries for you based on your interest, your budget. And then last but not least, you know, you're at the airport. We can pick you up. We can take you different places. Um so it's again that personalized experience. So for the most part right now, the folks that have, you know, been in touch with us and, and interested are people that have a connection to us through Massachusetts and so what we find is that a lot of people in New England want to come to Puerto Rico very understandably so because of the winter and so those are those are some of the folks that we're looking at the first person that we worked with is somebody from Western Mass and she had lost her husband recently and she said Josie I just I want to get out of Massachusetts I just need to escape and literally I booked her flight I booked an Airbnb for her and we picked her up for six days in a row and and she had the best time and she said I just want to go to a different beach every." Day and it was special to her because she felt as if you know we were catering to her. She said one of the things I enjoyed the most is that I could go into the ocean water and not worry that my things were not being watched. Mm-hmm. Right? Like something as simple as that. And then the, the culinary, you know, options that are on this island are unbelievable. I mean it's hard to stay in shape here because the food yes. is phenomenal.
0: But my fungus in two days so <laughs> and barely put any more food into my body.
3: But the truth is that there are so many hidden gems right and so the fact that we can point those out to folks bring them to them give them the history of you know how that business came about or who the owner is or the owners behind the bar and we introduce them to them or whatever that is that's special
0: josie miriam i'm so honored that you took the time to drive so far from where you are in puerto rico it might be hard for people to, to convince people to leave northampton to go visit somebody in amherst sometimes. <laughs> when you left sidra to come to Isabella. Yes. Two hours to come uh, spend some time with us to have lunch to tell us your story to look at sea turtles out our <laughs> airbnbs uh, patio here a huge honor thank you both so much
2: it's a different drive, you know?
1: <laughs> it's a different drive. thanks again to Holyoke's own forever miriam quinones and josie valentine you can learn more about what they are doing now at aventurasuisa.com It's International Women's Day. Got a woman you want to honor today? Text us 800-639-9120 or email thefab413 at nepm.org. Coming up, more of our tour of Merriam-Webster's headquarters in Springfield. You're listening to The Fabulous 413. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. Here's more of our tour of Merriam-Webster's Dictionary Headquarters in Springfield with Emily Brewster right around the corner from my house. Resident Wordster from Merriam-Webster.
0: We're at Merriam-Webster's Dictionary in Springfield on Federal Street right across from Stick. We're looking at a shelf filled with all sorts of dictionaries, some of which are huge and are like... 6 or 7 inches wide. I
4: can see that. That's like the
0: spine I'm talking about right. Yes. Now. Yeah. This
4: is Webster's New International Dictionary, second edition. This was published in 1934. It weighs 17 pounds. Wow.
0: So is that why all you editors are jacked?
4: <laughs> it um it is the largest mass-produced dictionary ever uh, book actually ever made. Largest by so, pages, largest or size by volume, by, weight or by all of it. yeah, yeah, <laughs> by by size of the spine. You actually cannot make, you can't actually mass produce a dictionary, a, a book that is you know any bigger than this really. Yeah, it so, is not
0: bigger than a bread box, but it's about half the size of a bread box. Really close to the size of a bread box. Yeah. <laughs> Should I make
4: you hold one? Yes. Okay.
0: <laughs> I want to see if I'm able to hold this.
4: It'll be like
1: holding twins. Yeah,
0: I'm gonna put on my my red and white <laughs> Merriam-Webster hat. <laughs> Wow, this is a heavy dictionary. I wouldn't want to carry this.
4: No, It's full of knowledge. Yeah. (laughs) Right, but you're not going to throw it in your backpack. No. Even if you want to use it at your desk, right, you kind of have to have a stand for it. You can't really slip it onto your lap. The dictionary that followed this dictionary is the Webster's Third New International Dictionary, which came out in
0: 1961. Not much smaller.
4: But but it is smaller. Two inches smaller.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
4: It is smaller, and yet... It still is an unabridged dictionary. The difference, the way that we were able to get this dictionary into this size or have the new edition be this smaller dictionary was really required kind of a change in philosophy. This dictionary includes a lot of proper nouns, This one has no proper nouns. Uh. This one is defined, um, there's a very, very, very strict defining rules about using phrases, and again, it was like this drive for concision was really, really um, enforced for this dictionary.
1: So the second edition ends up being kind of between
4: like a dictionary and an encyclopedia? It has much more encyclopedic information, yep. In in the making of this third New International Dictionary, there was very much a focus on only including lexical information. And we still hew to that pretty tightly. We don't want to define concepts and events, but instead we define the the words themselves. Let's go upstairs
0: card catalog. Card
4: catalogs! (laughs) If you like these card catalogs, I have got a lot to show you. All right. These are all for dates. These are all the cards that in our dictionaries since, uh, I think it was since the 1993 edition of the Collegiate Dictionary, um, we have provided a date of first known use at each entry. So the earliest use of the word there's a, a year or a century at the entry, and that tells you what the earliest currently known evidence for that word is.
0: And it goes into these catalogs still? These card catalogs that like you see in libraries? Or does it go chronicled online now?
4: I am not a dater, but I don't think that they, that the slips are made anymore. What, pull
0: one out and, re- and read it so we can see. like This is the birth of a word.
4: Oh, here's dinner. Oh!
0: The earliest use of dinner? Circa
4: 1300.
0: Wow. About 1 o'clock p.m. That's a good time for dinner.
4: That's too early. Dinner dance, 1901. Hmm. Yeah, the dating is so interesting. I remember at one point the earliest known use of the word frenemy was in the 80s. And then there was new evidence uh, from 1953. And we we're thinking, wow, 1953, frenemy. And then. Evidence of frenemy in use was found from 1898.
0: That's the other thing that's amazing about the dictionary and learning about this, because our dictionary in Springfield just calls balls and strikes, not making any sort of judgment about words. People will believe that something like the use of the singular they is brand new to people's gender identities right now. It is older than the use of singular you, which one of your former editor colleagues put a poem up on Twitter one time saying, roses are red, violets are blue, singular they is older than singular you. And I was like, thank you, the dictionary.
4: (laughs) (laughs) The history of the English language is it's amazing. It's so don't get judgmental. Is what it comes
0: down no. to. You'd be like, oh, friend of me, you're going to use all these trendy new words, and you'd be like, actually, this word dates back to the early part of the 20th century. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yep. Yep. It can be very humbling uh, to do the work of dictionary making because you realize that ideas you have about words and language in general are uh, are incorrect. Get off your high horse. <laughs> what are we going to see now? This is this is the editorial Best. floor. So this is where the editors do their work and these are oh. files citations. Well, look, there's Peter
0: Sokolowski, who hosts the jazz show hiding behind one of the cabinets. No, he's not Again? here. He's not here right
4: now. Again, you Peter can, is not here. You today. can listen
0: to him on New England Public Media.
4: So, you know, if you like file cabinets. Yes. I kind of do.
0: And these are, who writes all these? Because the penmanship is really nice. It's handwritten. <laughs> And are, what are these? Are these just little definitions?
4: No, these are citations. So every definition is written based on uh, evidence of the word in use. These pieces of paper are, are those bits of evidence.
0: So I'm looking up fakie. This superhuman ability to ride on the edge of chaos caught the attention of U.S. snowboarding coach Peter Foley. He has an amazing awareness of where he is in the air, gushes Foley. His upside-down 1080 is totally sick, and his air to fakie is higher than anyone's. Riders, even U.S. snowboarders, are in awe and a little jealous of Cass's raw skill.
4: All right, so this is taken from ESPN, Volume 5, Number 2, January 21, 2002. Some editor here at Merriam-Webster read this text and made note of it and uh, identified specifically 1080, sick, and Mm fakie and um noted these probably in a an actual magazine that you can hold in your hands and then they put that magazine on a file cabinet over there and then a typist came over and collected the magazine and then typed up this citation and underlined these things and then it went to a printer and it got printed out
0: and then put in this drawer to and live then put in this drawer forever. yes
4: now These are citations that have not been used. This sense of fakie when we were still using these paper files was not yet entered back here we have behind this little tab that says used, you can see the citations that have been used for a particular dictionary. And by used, it also means that the sense, the meaning identified here is already covered in our dictionaries. We don't need to write a new definition. We don't need to consider writing a new definition. The dictionary already does this job.
0: So now that you're not using these anymore, all of this is online, I'm assuming now all of the ways that this is done. So has all of these all of these things in literally one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight minimum that I can just see right here, file cabinets. Has all this been transferred digitally or not? Well,
4: there there are actually two different sets of of file cabinets. These are the new citations. Wow. Even though, <laughs> starting in the early 1990s, all the citations here were also made electronically. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, yeah, there's some really fun ones in here. You know, to be a citation, something can be, there are cartoons, there are cutouts from restaurant menus. There's fountain ink.
0: I should have brought like a fake definition and just planted it here. Like people bring their artwork Mm -hmm. to museums and hang it on the walls.
1: (laughs) Or just bananas and duct tape.
0: There you go, right. I'm gonna hide a banana in here. What made you want to be a dictionary editor, know that that was a a career path for you?
4: Oh, well, I was uh, finishing up my degree at UMass Amherst in uh, linguistics and philosophy, and I didn't know what I was going to do next. I had recently gotten married, and so I knew I wanted to stay in this area, and I thought I wanted to go on for more schooling, but I wasn't really sure. I was talking to my professor, Kyle Johnson, in the linguistics department, and he said, you know, Merriam-Webster is just down the road in Springfield. And I thought, oh, maybe I want to write dictionaries. Mm. None of my education in linguistics was remotely, I mean, I don't, I don't think dictionaries were ever even referenced as, you know, unless it was just like you need to look this up in one. <laughs> but the making of dictionaries was not something that was addressed in any of my education. But as soon as he mentioned that idea, it suddenly seemed very possible that, yes, I did want to do that.
0: People were, you live in Greenfield, yep. but you work remotely from Greenfield, even though this is in Springfield. People are working from all over the country and probably the world on this dictionary, but the home base is still here in Springfield, right? Yes. Noah Webster was from Hartford.
4: Where were the Merriams from? Springfield.
0: Okay, so they are the connection there. Did Noah Webster ever spend any time in Springfield, or is it really just Merriam that brought Webster I, here?
4: As far as I know, he just spent time in Hartford and Amherst. Uh uh-huh. All right. Uh, I mean, he traveled, of yes. course. You know, he got chatty with George Washington, for example. Wow. Knocked out his teeth, hopefully. (laughs) Not made of wood. Not made of wood. (laughs) <laughs> um, yes, Made so so standards. many so many file cabinets. Uh, no one will be surprised to learn that it, there are a lot of systems involved in updating a dictionary and writing a dictionary. Every entry has to be examined and and uh, and addressed by multiple editors. So I am a general definer, which means I don't do math or science or medical terms, but I do everything else from prepositions to slang to you know politics and everything else. As a general definer, what I would do is come over to this production table and I would sign out a section of the alphabet and then I would find, I would find on this wall the box that had that section. And I would pull out the citations, and then my job was to go through each citation and to see whether or not the meaning of the word used in the citation was already in the dictionary. If it was not, I was to see if we had, if we, if it should be considered for entry. A little bit slow going. Yeah. And then write things up on these galleys and tape a new entry on this little 3 by 5 slip of paper onto a its own paper, or if it's a smaller kind of revision, you could actually just make it in, uh, in writing on the galley. Look
1: that page it just says, also called Collard Greens. <laughs> Is that what it said? Yes. <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh, wow. Collard. So this, for the 11th Collegiate, the entry for Collard had been a stalked, smooth-leaved kale. That's that's how it that's how it had been defined. Okay. And then it got revised to a cabbage, and the genus and species is there, related to kale, and having a loose head of stalked smooth leaves, also its leaves cooked and eaten as a vegetable, called also collard greens.
1: <laughs> awesome! Well, I'm thinking of like seed saving projects, so to, like the variations there now. So there's collards, but there's also cabbage collards, oh. so, which are a different thing.
0: She wants to know more so she can put it in the next I edition know. of the dictionary. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yep. And that's a term that, you know, it, it rides kind of a line. It's, I would probably leave that for a science editor, but I have to do food terms, you know, so sometimes these things oh, can yeah? be, they can be a little unclear. These are now 20 years old. Oh, oh there's colonoscopy.
0: Oh, I think I'm due for one pretty soon. Emily Brewster, resident Worcester from Merriam-Webster, our dictionary here in Springfield, where we are in the building right now on Federal Street. Is there a word that you have defined that you're particularly proud of?
4: Well, I, I mean, we were talking about that project with all the citations, and I got out the box. And for the 11th Collegiate Dictionary that was published in 2003, as I said, I happened to sign out the very first alphabetical section of the dictionary. We didn't start with A. We always start with L, M, something like that. Um, And then we we went from, you know, L or M to Z and then back to A. And I happened to get the very first batch of A. Now, for some of these words, you only have, you know, three or four citations in the box that you have to look at. But for a word like the article A, you have many, many Know, 60 70 maybe even a hundred so uh, I was going through all these citations for the word "a" uh, and I had them in stacks on my desk all these little piles for all the different meanings of the word "a" uh. and uh, I ended up with a nice tidy little pile that was not yet covered in our entry for "a. Uh. Aha! Yeah, yeah. You discovered a new meaning for ah. Well, it wasn't new. It just hadn't been defined yet. Mm. And I was very gratified to see that it was also not in the OED. Nice. Wow, Oxford English Dictionary. I so al- I so I had to draft a definition for this meaning of a, uh, and that was a really exciting day.
0: What is that meaning of a uh, that we didn't have in the dictionary until you entered the scene?
4: It is defined as it's a you know it's kind of, it's a very dictionary ease kind of definition used as a function word before a proper noun to distinguish a referent from a usual former or hypothetical condition. As in, a triumphant Ms. Jones greeted her supporters. Oh wow. So That's the, cool. Right. The, we use that all the time. Yeah, it's right. It's it's a fully established sense of uh. As a lexicographer, I recognized immediately, Oh, I don't have to look for more evidence and make sure this is really established. This is very familiar to me. I know this use. We've just been missing it for all these years. Yeah, the uh tells you that she's not always the triumphant gal. A
0: triumphant Ms. Brewster has come up with a new definition
4: <laughs> for ah. Uh. Yeah, I will always feel really proud of that one.
1: Thanks again to Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam Webster. Right
0: here in Springfield, that was not my favorite word that she defined. And there's two other ones. So we, we won't get to them right now because you're listening to NEPM. <laughs> Tomorrow on the show. Ask a conductor or a congressman. If you've got a question for the Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart or U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, email us at thefab413 at nepm.org or text us 800-639-9120.
1: And while you're emailing or texting and not looking so heavily for that lead that Mar- that Monty just buried, <laughs> want to honor someone on this International Women's Day? Email thefab413 at nepm.org or text us at 800-639-9120. You're listening to The Fabulous 413. 413- on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Time to pull from the mailbag. We asked for emails and texts honoring women important to you on this International Women's Day. Liz writes, wanted to give a shout out to Lorelai. Oh, I... A Risis? A Risis. I think it's a Risis. I believe it's a Risis. I'm so sorry. I've met Lorelai. Lorelai is delightful. She's a powerhouse queer trans activist that's truly a force to be reckoned with. You can catch her at pretty much any action for justice that happens in the Valley, right down to marching as a one-woman pride march when Northampton lost theirs because of COVID. The 413 is so lucky to have her.
0: Another email from the grab bag. The mailbag, this International Women's Day. Shout out to a truly creative artist and amazing woman, Lori Holmes Clark from Ben Clark, fruit farmer from Clarkdale Fruit Farmer, and big fan of the show. And here it's uh, officially two-week anniversary.
1: Oh, that's so weird to say out loud. Who would you like to honor Monty?
0: Well, uh, in the one minute we have left, (laughs) one of the most amazing people I ever met in the fabulous 413 is Juanita Nelson. She was integrating lunch counters in the 1930s. Her husband was a a war resistor for World War II. She lived on an off-the-grid cabin on Woman Hill in South Deerfield. No electricity, a well, and me and my children got to know her a little bit before she passed away. She's the woman responsible for the Greenfield Farmer's Market. She's the woman responsible for the Greenfield Free Harvest Supper. She's the woman responsible for creating winter farmer's markets here in the 413, and her belief in peace and the and humanity, despite the odds, is uh, super inspirational to me. So I, whenever I think of women who have influenced me, especially local women, and especially on a day like International Women's Day, uh, I think of Juanita Nelson, who passed away in 2015, and and the time I got to spend with her on Woolman Hill.
1: And I think I'm going to throw out there, just very briefly, without going way too much into it, like I'd like to, but Liz O'Gilvie. We'll have her on from the Springfield Food Justice Council. We will. I I think she's amazing. Tomorrow on the Fabulous 413, ethnomusicologist Tim Erickson joins us to show us the ins and outs of shape note singing just ahead of the Western Massachusetts Sacred Heart Convention happening this weekend in Northampton.
0: And a McGoverning with McGovern, Congressman Jim McGovern will join us again. We'll chat with him, and we'll has, ask him some of your
1: questions. And tomorrow, we'll introduce our Tanglewood correspondent, Boston pops conductor Keith Lockhart. Got a question for the maestro or the congressman? Email us at thefab413 at nepm.org or text us anytime at 1-800-639-9120.
0: Our director is Tony Dunn, doing it till he's satisfied.
1: Our engineer is Betsy Cordyceps, the fungus among us, among the last of us.
0: It's actually Betsy Cordyceps, not Cordyceps. Our technical team is Kara Foster, Bart Rankin, and Punk Rock Dubé.
1: Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley, Guitar Orchestra, Bad Bunny, The Beatles, Homebody, and... Bye! Bye!